0: Hello and welcome to The G Word. My name is Naima Kalachand and I'm the Head of Product Engagement and Growth at Genomics England. On today's episode I'm joined by Dr Jack Bartram who's a consultant paediatric haematologist at Great Ormond Street Hospital. Today we are going to be discussing how genomics has been integrated into care for childhood cancer and the outcomes and impact this has had on children and their families. If you enjoy today's episode We'd really love your support. Please like, share, and rate us on wherever you listen to your podcasts. First of all, let's start with giving me a little bit of introduction of yourself and a little bit about your background and your work in cancer so far.
1: Yeah, thank you for the invite to the podcast today. My name is Dr. Jack Bartram. I'm a consultant paediatric haematologist at Great Ormond Street Hospital for Children. I work with children with cancer.
0: And can you tell me specifically what you do at Great Ormond Street?
1: Yeah, so I'm a paediatric haematologist, so I look after children with blood disorders and primary blood cancers. The majority of my work is treating children with leukemia. Leukemia is the commonest childhood cancer, but equally one form of leukemia is also one of the most treatable cancers we treat.
0: I'm sure it's very difficult, but you know, I'm sure it's like trying to keep yeah. spirits
1: up. Because the first question everyone asks me is, you know, it must be horrendous working in oncology. Mm-hmm. And it's actually not, you know, it's, a, you know, yes, there is sad days, but we do cure the majority of children. And like I said, the hospital environment, certainly Great Ormond Street Hospital, there's something about it. It's just an amazing place to work. And there's just a atmosphere, like a buzz there really, which most of that's obviously the patients, but also the staff and then the other research opportunities it, it brings there and all the kind of other people working around you. It, it's an amazing place.
0: So as you know, it's Childhood Cancer Awareness Month at the minute. And I wanted to speak to you about it. And if you could kind of give me a bit of an overview of why we're recognising Childhood Cancer Awareness Month and if you give me a little bit of background of as to how you got into working in cancer.
1: As you mentioned it is Childhood Cancer Awareness Month this month so it's really trying to highlight all the work that we're doing and both here and across the world into to improve outcomes for children with cancer. How did I get into haematology? So I qualified back in 2003 and I made my way through paediatric training and then I happened to land kind of almost by accident into a job at Great Ormond Street Hospital, working in the haematology oncology ward as a junior doctor then. And, you know, from day one, I found it absolutely fascinating. People would expect it to be a sad place. But actually, you know, what you, what you see working on, on the ward there, you know, it's an amazing place to work. Uh, you get an incredibly close relationship with uh, families. And generally, the atmosphere in the hospital, you know, is really positive. So from that sprung my interest and there's a heavy, heavy research background as well. So it really allows you to align both interests of working, you know, both with people and, and doing the research on the side. So from there, I, I never really looked back and um, my aim was to become a consultant there and I worked my way over the next 10 or so years to, to get into that position.
0: It would be good to understand a bit about some of the statistics around cancer in children. Could you tell me a bit about maybe some of the most common cancers that affect children in the UK, for example?
1: Yeah, so there's roughly around 2,000 cases of cancer diagnosed in children in the UK every year. So if you take that on a, a daily basis, that's about five children a day, which is a large amount of cases. And although the majority of cases survive, if you look overall, uh, the number of deaths is, is, is still too high and hence why we're, we're all working hard to try and improve this. The problem with childhood cancer is because even though those numbers sound large, you know, if you look at cancer as a whole across the adults, it accounts still for less than 1% of, of all cancers diagnosed in the UK. So therefore, because it's so rare, trying to understand, you know, the risk factors involved and exactly why these occur, it's not fully understood And then obviously funding, because it accounts for a smaller proportion of of cancer overall in the country, is often less. So we're all trying to work hard as a global community now to try and get larger cohorts of patients to look for reasons why cancer occurs. And then more importantly, how we can provide better therapies, more targeted therapies, less toxic therapies, so we can cure more children.
0: And that really segues into my next question is, what role does genomics play in childhood cancer in relation to these things that you've mentioned diagnosis, personalized treatment, screening?
1: Yeah, it plays a massive role. And even in my short career, I've really seen the evolution of genomics. So when I, I left medical school, these big advanced kind of molecular diagnostics, as we know it now, didn't really exist. And we were doing it going gene by gene. And although genetics was a fascinating topic at medical school for me, we didn't have the access you know, to these mass uh, sequencing machines and and data that that we do now, so you know we've seen full integration really from single gene testing all the way up to these massive gene panels and and now even whole genome sequencing, which is allowing us to really make diagnosis one more accurate, try and direct therapies better, and then on the on the research front look for new therapeutic targets, and importantly answer that question that families always ask is you know why did this happen to my child and then equally what about my other children and what about the rest of the family? So, you know, I think we've really gone from diagnostic diagnosis down the microscope to diagnosis from a sequencing machine and looking at the underlying DNA to really label what is the tumour and learn about how it will behave so allow us to target that treatment more effectively.
0: I guess some parents might be apprehensive of the children undergoing genetic screening. You know, what's involved if, if the patient is going to undergo whole genome sequencing, for example?
1: I mean, we have been, as I say, been doing genetic diagnostic for many years. And and the area I work in in leukemia has really led the way for advanced genetic diagnosis. And we've been doing it for a number of years. But now with more broad gene sequencing panels, you know, there is the possibility that you'll find something that that you weren't looking for. I mean, to reassure people in, in the tests that we use, we'd only be looking for cancer related genetic mutations, and not you know, for risk of heart disease, etc. Although you potentially have the ability to do that, certainly how we target our approach at the moment is is information that's only relevant to the patient. And what it involves is it, it, it's nothing extra additional to, to what we've done previously. So we take the tumour, which in children I treat tends to be leukaemia, so that's cancer of the blood. So we just take the blood cells or, or cells from the bone marrow, and we extract DNA from, from that. And then that's sequenced on of these large sequencing machines and the results are fed back to us and we interpret the data in line with the clinical information given from the patient.
0: And I wonder as well, has genomics noted any difference between childhood and adult cancers?
1: There is a big difference between uh, childhood and adult cancers and both in how they present, how they behave and, and their response to therapies. And again, genomics is, is slowly unpicking this and in fact we can use cancer in children really as a model of how cancer can develop in adults so they kind of they work in synergy really and you know a lot of the stuff we'd learnt from adult populations we you know apply to our analysis in children but equally we're using childhood cancer as a model of cancer so it can help us to treat and target therapies better in adults
0: moving on i wonder if you could potentially share any case studies as an example of where genomics has played a crucial role in either diagnosis or treatment within a child.
1: You know if we look back on the last two or three years when we've really really ramped up how we've implemented this advanced genetic diagnosis it's you know it's really changed how quickly one we can can make accurate diagnosis and you know really aided how we can restratify and apply therapies to children. You know if I look back and if I reflect on the, on the last three years, you know, we can probably accurately say, you know, at least a quarter of patients, it's given us additional information, which is either aided in diagnosis or, like I said, to help risk stratify a patient or potentially reveal a, a target for a therapy that we didn't know of before. And what this has led to and what we've seen over the last three years or so is that we have actually changed management of patients based on this. So definitely, we've got examples where, you know, you can clarify the diagnosis, we've changed the risk category, or we've identified, for example, an unexpected cancer predisposition in a family, which has then led on to screening for the family, which can then give the family the, you know, the knowledge that, you know, to try and do things to either modify the risk of cancer in the family, or at least screen for it so they can detect things early to prevent things presenting too late. So I think overall, you know, we've certainly seen a massive shift in the last three years, and my colleagues would equally say the same. That you know, this has revolutionised how we are treating patients.
0: Yeah, and I assume that you've seen a, a real difference in the outcomes and impact of these things on the patients' families and, and the patients themselves, the children themselves.
1: Yes, I mean, certainly, obviously, the, the the biggest cases are the ones where you've you've changed a diagnosis, for example, based on on genetics. Uh, And certainly we've seen that and and that can have a massive impact on the family, you know, going from a, you know, potentially a a diagnosis, which was, you know, the outcome was poor, less than 50% to then changing that to a diagnosis where with a targeted therapy, you've got an outcome of over, over 90%. So seeing the impact, as I said now, and, and certainly the, along the question of the, the cancer predisposition, this is a question families always, always ask on day one is, you know, why did this occur? Or, what about my other children? And and certainly some of the testing we're doing now allows us to at least answer in part that question that no, there is no predisposition. There is nothing anyone could have done about this, this, you know, even though it's it's a terrible terminology to use that this is bad luck. But what our hope is, we're going to uncover what that bad luck is. Because as well as giving us clinical information, all this advanced diagnostics, if allowed to be used for research can really start to answer those questions of, you know, what actually caused this? What is this bad luck there must be some explanation for this and so working both you know locally across the UK and then globally there's a massive drive now to try and pull our information to try and improve the outcomes for children.
0: And I wondered as well if you could illustrate maybe any scenarios or examples where genomics hasn't been integrated into the care of a child with cancer.
1: Yeah, I guess it's it, it's hard to give specific examples, but, you know, I think now, and, and certainly it's been recognised that if you're not using these more advanced um, advanced diagnostics, that, you know, things potentially could be missed which could then eventually, you know, lead to either the wrong treatment being allocated, which I'm sure has happened in the past uh, with no, you know, everyone with the best intentions. We just didn't have the technology or opportunities potentially have been missed because of the speed of the diagnostics coming back. So, yeah, uh, you know, I think now uh, certainly, you know, in childhood and adult cancer now, the focus is on really on these advanced diagnostics and, and fully integrating them. Uh, to give the best overall picture of what's going on with the patient, to then be able to really target your therapy uh, to be the most effective and, and importantly, uh, the least toxic therapy.
0: And I think a lot of people are aware of some disparities and challenges to access of genomics-based care. And I wondered if we could touch on those a bit and you know the, the challenges that you see within this area.
1: Yeah, I think as we touched on, the speed with which these technologies have, have come about, you know, is, is really, really fast. And trying to integrate that into uh, the you know, standard of care health practice is challenging. Uh, and certainly we've seen that here and we've worked incredibly hard to try and do that. And I think the first thing which you know, I always say is, is education. One, people have to know it exists, uh, both patients and healthcare providers uh, but then also how you actually access that and the logistics around that because it's it's not it's not a straightforward you know you just tick a box and this happens this the logistics involved in all of this testing you know it, it is massive, and with that in mind I think the education has to go all the way back to you know starting potentially at school, increasing awareness of genomics generally in the community in the school curriculum importantly in medical school and um, other allied health professionals training, and then. Carried through medical education. I mean, the first question I always ask medical students when they come to our institution is, you know, tell me about how much teaching you've had in genomics. You know, what do you know about genomics? Because, you know, as I see it, and I think everyone. Does as well, you know. This is really the future of medicine. It has to it has to take kind of centre stage in in education because it's not only in in childhood cancer that this is important. Uh, this is important across the board in in healthcare. So, education, education, education. I guess, and you know, we're certainly seeing that certainly th- through NHS England, uh, through Genomics England. Uh, and then at a more local level, both within genomic laboratory hubs, and then even at the institutional basis, we're really trying to work hard to to, to highlight genomics. And there's, you know, there's so much you can access now online and, and other education tools uh, that I think it really is starting to, to get together momentum. And certainly I've seen that with the uptake of, of the cancer sequencing for, for childhood cancer over the last year, especially we've gone from a position where, you know, probably worse sequencing less than half of children with cancer to the point now where, you know, we we get a sequencing majority, if not all all of patients. So certainly at Great Ormond Street, any patient who comes either a new diagnosis of cancer or a relapse of cancer will have advanced genomic sequencing done on the tumour, uh, including a whole genome sequencing.
0: And is that a service that's offered across the UK?
1: The majority of institutions across the UK would offer advanced genomic diagnostics, Not all places at the moment offer whole genome sequencing and that's a slight disparity across the UK at the moment. So in England all children with suspected cancer have universal access to whole genome sequencing which means every child has access Uh, but in some of the devolved nations this this isn't the case at the moment but we're all trying to work hard to close that disparity and make it available for all patients.
0: Just thinking on that as well like how does it compare to what's offered worldwide in treatment of childhood cancer. Can you give me a bit of an idea of that?
1: England is uniquely positioned now with the genomic medicine service we have and, you know, the fact that we offer whole genome sequencing universally to every child with cancer, you know, and that's integrated into our into our health system makes us, you know, completely unique, I think. There's many other institutions in the world who are offering, you know, these large sequencing programs, but often they're institutional based. And there's only a few other countries who would who are offering this as a kind of rollout service uh, to every patient um, uh, diagnosed. And and the advantage again we have in the UK is that we have a really great health service you know which comes down to you know essentially everyone carrying a an NHS number and then all of your health information is related to that so it makes it you know a really really powerful tool both in terms of diagnostics and the potential for research Um, so I think as I said we're uniquely positioned to try and really make a make a difference.
0: And I wanted to ask you about as well the ethical considerations that parents and healthcare providers should be aware of when they're considering genomics-based care. Could you talk me through some of those?
1: Yeah, I think this is a really important, um, really important point because uh, there's many, you know, there's, there's many myths and many pitfalls uh, here um, because we are, you know, we are testing your underlying, the, the underlying DNA, so the genetic code you carry and when we are talking through this with patients, I think it's important that we, we explain exactly the process, you know, of what happens, which we've already touched on in terms of physically what happens, but then the, the the information that can be potentially gleaned from that. So it's important that we discuss potential implications of finding a, for example, a cancer predisposition in a family because of obviously immediate physical impact that could have on on, on a child. You know you potential risk of having cancer but also the massive psychological impact and potential you know financial in terms of disclosing uh, a cancer predisposition uh, in a family say to a health insurance company or mortgage company or or something like that so when we we do take a lot of time to discuss with families the you know what we're doing um, we run through a formal consent process give Patient's time to think about you know what they want tested and what they don't want tested, uh, and then try and tailor it to each individual family. But I think overall, my experience has been the uptake has been incredibly good because generally patients and families want as much information as they can. And I think traditionally, uh, as healthcare professionals and physicians, we've been quite protective over our patients. Uh, and actually, people want to be empowered with all, all of the information they can, and so I think it's our duty to offer this at least, and not withhold the um, potential for whole genome sequencing or these advanced genetic diagnostics. Um, and it's often a case of you know, who are we protecting? Are we protecting ourselves because we don't know how to deal with that data, or are we protecting the patient? And it's a constantly evolving ethical discussion, certainly that we have in you know in our department nationally and internationally about. The rollout of these various, as the genetic sequencing programs get broader and broader, um, you know, who who and how uh, those discussions happen. And then, of course, you have to set in place something within your institution. You know, if you were to find a cancer predisposition, you have to have a clinic set up for that or someone who can deal with that information because it's not fair to offer these tests and then not be armed with the tools to then offer the rest of the family uh, a screening program. or what have you. So certainly we've uh, worked hard to set up groups. So, you know, certainly we have a large, what we call a tumour uh, advisory board, which contains, you know, a wide degree of uh, lots of clinicians, uh, the clinical scientists in the laboratory who do the majority of the work, there's geneticists, there's genetics advisors, and many other people form this kind of multidisciplinary team who, once we've made a decision on a patient, we've already got the kind of plan in place to offer the uh, appropriate um, kind of triage afterwards in terms of screening and rollout and, you know, and and who's the best person to, to deliver the information to the family. And again, this comes back to our point, you know, about education uh, and why that's so important, not only for all the health pressures involved, but equally the public and and patients.
0: Yeah, and I guess that ties into, you know, I, I agree with what you said that people like to be armed with information now. There is a lot of misinformation online as well. And you know, that can lead to a lot of mistrust, you know, around data storage, maybe lack of understanding, um, scepticism around maybe commercial interests and companies offering these genetic testing services. So, and we've spoken about education, but in what ways can healthcare professionals better communicate this risk and benefits of genomic testing to parents and the general public? You know, are there any kind of campaigns that you've seen or anything that's been really effective? You know, even childhood cancer awareness, maybe this is an opportunity to really educate people and help them understand
1: there's lots of charities and patient advocacy groups around, um, uh, and they take many of them take advice from you know us, the physicians who are kind of pioneering these uh, these technologies. Uh, and I guess it's our responsibility really to to ensure that uh, you know the governance of these, uh, and making sure that we have you know educated families correctly before before they embark on on some of this sequencing. Um, uh, and constantly reviewing, you reviewing the process. You know, we're in, we're in the midst of just reviewing our experience. For example, of the la- of the our first experience of the whole genome sequencing, in the in you know being used in anger as it were in the in the clinical space, uh, to make it to make sure those things you know what what we're finding is valid, uh, and you know there is benefit to the patients of, of which you know we, we're definitely finding that is the case, um, and you know in terms of other other spaces like you said there's lots of there is lots of misinformation online but equally there's lots of good information especially point people towards NHS England's resources and genomics England's resources you know which which are really really powerful now uh, as educational tools
0: and informed consent as well that plays a role in education
1: yeah i mean certainly yeah we we're trained um so, so medical school yeah, you know there's whole Whole modules now on informed consent, and um, uh, and that that plays a massive part in uh, in counselling patients, you know, as part of their treatment. But equally now, as as, as we do more and more genomic testing, um, and NHS England again has produced a, a really good guidance for us, really clear guidance for for physicians called the record of discussion, actually, for whole genome sequencing, which really does film film quite a nice template for how you. You know how you go about discussing this this with a with a patient or their family. You know all this information is freely available, uh, and it's really it's just a really good resource for for clinicians like myself, just to guide you through that converse, conversation, to, and again to ensure that you're not missing important bits uh, and questions, and then giving families time to actually think about. Because, as you can imagine it's, it's fairly emotive time when someone's just been diagnosed with, with cancer and um, I think the knee-jerk of all patients and families would be yes just everything everything but um, you know you have to give, give the families time um, to be able to to think about uh, these things and then also go back to give them the right to say actually yes I said yes at the time but no i thought about it we've had a good chat in the family and although you know, we understand the full implications of this. You know, I don't want this kind of testing done. Or the question, you know, we sometimes ask is about research because, you know, research is important and having access to these, these you know, unique data sets for us to try and make improvements is really important. But equally, you have to respect the fact that, you know, this data is as precious as a, you know, a sample of, you know, you know it's a, it is part of the patient. So um, there has to be clear clear guidelines around which data we can and and can't use. Uh, And I think we're fairly good at, you know, um, communicating that to patients. And certainly uh, then patients can also see the feedback of, of, you know, how their health data has has helped in the form of publications and other research projects that are ongoing.
0: And what would you say to those who think, you know, obviously, parents and families of people who have been affected with with childhood cancer you know that the progress is a bit slow and they're in the position where they're waiting for treatment and diagnosis.
1: I think we can use childhood acute lymphoblastic leukaemia as you know as a as a model for for how you know how outcomes have massively improved uh, for a for a single cancer Uh, and the hope is that we can Uh, get the outcomes for all other types of childhood cancer to you know up to that cure of over 90% and the eventual aim of 100% Uh, and certainly we're working hard to do that in our institution both locally nationally and internationally and it's through a lot of this collaborative work on these big genetic sequencing programs that you know I think we will be able to unpick you know the cause as we already have of many cancers but then equally working in collaboration with other research groups and Uh, technologies to try and find more novel therapies you know where we've pinpointed a genetic cause for the cancer we then need to find a a novel therapy for that and that 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 will be the key uh, over the coming years Uh, and again like I have mentioned previously not only uh, to cure, but we want to prevent the complications and the toxicities of therapy. So I think I'd say to, you know, to families, we're working incredibly hard on this. We've already made massive improvements uh, in many, many diseases, but equally we're continuing to work hard to, to try and improve those outcomes to 100% and importantly reduce the toxicities that children suffer from these treatments.
0: I guess finally, just to ask, how, how do you see this Progression of the use of genomics integrated into childhood cancer like treatment and diagnosis. How do you see that in the next five years? Like, what do you expect?
1: Yeah, so it's a really good question. We've already, I mean, it's it's hard to predict because how quickly things have gone in the last uh, three years. So we've quickly gone from single gene testing uh, to panels of gene testing to now offering you know whole genome sequencing. Um uh, I, I guess the next step will be making the turnaround of that even quicker, uh, which we can already see in action. The turnaround times have already come down, down really quickly. There's many critics out there at the moment who are, you know, who don't like to engage in that process of whole genome sequencing because of the turnaround times. But you know, with the hard work we've done here, we've seen those come down and as technology advances, we we know it's going to get quicker and quicker and cheaper and cheaper. Uh, so I mean I do see a day when you know you'll almost you'll have the sequence back of the whole genome sequencing back of of the cancer within 24 hours, which you can imagine, you know how that can really really change the the shape of how you how you're you know guiding treatment, because you know as oncologists there's always this balance between giving the right amount of treatment to cure a child uh, versus. Too much treatment where you cause toxicity, and certainly in the area I work in, leukemia, we're really at a kind of tipping point for that at the moment because our, our outcomes are actually very good in in, um, in especially in acute lymphoblastic leukemia, um, and we're now at the point where we need to reduce therapy uh, because the toxicity is more than uh, you know is more of a problem. So if we could better select those patients on day one, um, then, you know, then we'd be able to, to really have an even, you know, larger impact. And a certain, and other, you know, the other things we touched on about, you know, new, new therapeutic targets, which you'd only be able to find from, you know, whole genome sequence, for example, or uh, the cancer predisposition. So, the, you know, the quicker these things can be done, uh, uh, always the better. Uh, and so, and also just as, as we have more and more whole genomes coming back on patients it just gives us more and more uh, data to work from um, and then that doesn't even touch on then the potential research aspect of this um, and, and like I said because we're uniquely positioned in England with our health service and everything going back to this single NHS number as it were you, you start to be able to make some really really powerful inferences about The causes of cancer uh, and then you know the outcomes and and how people have responded to treatment Uh, so I think yeah there's going to be a a big kind of integration uh, and uh, trying to get the most out of all this data is is going to be the key
0: over the next few years. Yeah and it's certainly rapidly evolving so it'll be interesting to see what happens. So we'll wrap up the podcast there. Thank you to Dr Jack Bartram for joining me today as we discuss the role of genomics in childhood cancer. If you'd like to hear more like this, please subscribe to The G Word on your favourite podcast app. Thank you for listening. I've been your host and podcast producer, Naima Kalachant. This podcast was edited by Mark Kendrick at Ventu Digital.